Our Father who art in heaven, sambahin ang ngalan mo. Venao teo hen. Teri maisipuriho. Así en la tierra como en el cielo. Chintian, chini ke wamen, wamen de maize mianbao. Dari eche wajiwa. Jako i my odpuszczamy naszym winowajcom. Jęglej sodenegl prywejsyka panamy. Me dejwonuzyman. Jęłaj koptoł. Głowu na utukufu. Forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning, church family. To everyone who's joining us, wherever you are this morning online, we're so glad that you're with us. This morning, we want to talk to you specifically about prayer. And I'd love to speak to those who particularly feel like you have, at any point, been dissatisfied with your own prayer life. You ever feel guilty about not praying enough? Ever confused about just how it is that prayer works, or even if prayer works? And just to be really clear, here's who we're not talking to this morning. If prayer comes easily to you, if your mind never wanders while you pray, if you're never troubled by the idea of unanswered prayer, if you're the kind of person when somebody cuts you off on the highway that your instinctive response is just to pray a prayer of blessing over their life, if you're the kind of person who wins $10 million in the lottery and your first response is to say, God, thank you, but forgive me for, for praying the lottery and, and God, give me the ability to be courageous in the way that I use the money. In short, if you're a Jedi warrior in prayer, then probably this message isn't for you. You might want to go to the kitchen, make a sandwich, and then come back and join us in a little while for communion. This message is for the rest of us. You see, there's this strange truth about, about us. To, to be human is to pray. In moments of great joy, in moments of great need or great fear, in moments of great guilt or great sadness, we speak almost instinctively to something beyond ourselves. We can't help it. To be human is to pray. And so we wonder, why is it so complicated? Are there rules to prayer? Am I doing it wrong? Well, embedded right there in the middle of the greatest talk ever delivered, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us the greatest prayer ever prayed. And that's where we're going to look this morning. But before he gets there, he starts with a couple of warnings. We're going to look at those warnings first. It comes in Matthew 6, verse 5, the first warning, when Jesus says, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. There they can be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've already received their reward in full. There's a great line from that old book, The Catcher in the Rye. It kind of applies here. It says, if you do something too good, then after a while, if you don't watch it, you start showing off, and then you're just not as good at it anymore. Even prayer. Even prayer can be one of those things where people who feel like they're good at doing it start showing off. And I suppose no one's more guilty of it than pastors ourselves. Sometimes I find when I'm with a group of people 
someone else is praying, as we do on Wednesday nights regularly, that if I'm not careful, instead of listening to their prayer, my mind rushes forward and I'm thinking about what I'm going to pray when it's my turn. Specifically, I'm thinking, will it sound sincere? Will it be inspiring? Will it be memorable? Is it going to get an amen or those nods and grunts of agreement? I don't want to be thinking things like that, but that's just in me. And it's in me when I'm supposed to be praying. So Jesus gives an alternate strategy. And here's the second warning. It comes in verse 6. Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. You have to imagine that back in Jesus' day, on the poor farms in Palestine, there weren't a lot of private rooms. The only room that had a door, if you had a door at all, would likely be the supply room where you'd put food and toy and tools and, and maybe, maybe some of your small indoor animals. But it wouldn't ever look like the kind of room where important things happen. One good reason to pray in private is if you do it badly, only God will know. And God doesn't care. Because beyond that, Jesus is addressing, I think, one of the great barriers that we face in prayer. God is unseen, but God sees what is done in the secret places, what is unseen. Prayer is based on the reality of the unseen world, and we have been so conditioned in our culture to believe only what we can see with our eyes or touch with our hands. Only those things are real. And this gets us again into the deep places of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the great questions that are posed in the sermon and the answers that are offered. What is it that's real? And Jesus responds emphatically, what's most real is God himself and his kingdom coming on earth. The most important part of the world, the most important part of you is unseen. The very reason that you're here today is that at some point in the morning, you formed an intention. You got up, you got dressed, you turned on your computer, you punched up the address, and you joined us. You formed an intention. Now, nobody's ever seen an intention. Maybe we can see neurons or synapses, but but not an intention. Your thoughts, your desires, your choices, all these things are unseen. Maybe your body, the neurons in your eyes or the muscles in your arms, these things respond to what's unseen. But your words, your words, your your thoughts that give your words motion, all of these take the unseen and make it visible. In other words, matter, the things that, that we can touch and see and hold, is not indifferent to personality, to unseen forces. In fact, matter, things like computer and cell phones and donuts, they all began as ideas. They all began unseen. And Jesus says what is true of persons is also true of the universe generally. The reality all around us that is seen is undergirded by a reality that is unseen but is just as real. And it's there when we're still that we meet God who is unseen. Prayer is hard for us. At least it can be hard for me because we think if we're not moving, if we're not achieving some visible progress that 
that nothing is happening. And you know this idea, it starts very early in human beings. Two of our three kids, they, they love to be in the car. And parents, you've probably done this. You can't get the baby to sleep, so what do you do? You strap them in their car seat and you take them for a drive. There's something soothing about the motion. But the minute the car stops, quiet time stops too. Turns out that babies hate red lights just as, as much as the rest of us. They want to be moving. And prayer, if we're honest, prayer sometimes feels like we're sitting at a red light. Nothing is happening. Sometimes you pray and you don't get what you want and it feels like you're stuck there at a red light. It's never going to change. That's the barrier. And Jesus knows this about us. So he goes on and he, he gives one final warning in verse 7. In verse 7 he says, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will never be heard because, or they think they will be heard because of their many words. Sometimes we think about prayer in ways that are just really superstitious. In, a, in an old Charlie Brown cartoon, I remember Linus said, I've just made the most important theological discovery, Charlie. I've discovered that if while you're praying, you hold your hands upside down, you get the opposite of what you pray for. Some of you, maybe you're thinking, well, that's been my problem. But even in Christian circles, we hold on to these kind of crazy ideas. Or we pray these mindless prayers where our minds just kind of drift on in autopilot. I've heard pastors, many of whom should know better, in church gatherings say, God bless us as we come into your presence this morning. And I can just imagine God, who the Bible says is present in all time, in all space, saying back, well, where is it exactly that you think that I've been? Or people will sit down in front of a table, food loaded with grease and lard, butter, sugar, fat, cholesterol, and they'll pray, God bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. But you might as well pray, God bless this food to the hardening of our arteries, because that's, that's what's going to happen. You see, what, what the pagans with all of their babbling didn't realize was that prayer to the God of Israel was never on autopilot. It was never just the rote depiction or, or the, the rote repetition of a bunch of words. Prayer was intelligent, thoughtful conversation between two persons, a human person and a divine person. It's a conversation about what it is they're doing together. That's prayer in the Bible. So Jesus gives these three warnings. And then after he gives them, he leaves us with one of his greatest gifts, with the grandest prayer that's ever been prayed. Of all the prayers that human beings have ever launched, this probably is the best and the most repeated. In some ways, getting advice from Jesus on how to pray is, well, it's kind of like getting advice from Warren Buffett on how to invest. Why wouldn't you take that? And the takeaway from this week's message is really simple. If, if you just wanted to tune out now, if you hear nothing else, hear this. It's called the Lord's Prayer for a reason. And one of the ways that we can honor him best is to use the words that he left specifically for us. Pray this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. In fact, we're going to challenge each other to pray it every day this week. 
You might make a commitment to pray it first thing in the morning. In fact, I read about somebody who actually put their toothbrush under their bed every night so they'd have to get down on their knees in the morning and start their day, not just rummaging around for their toothbrush, but while they were on their knees in prayer, praying the Lord's Prayer. And when you do this, the idea is is that the prayer isn't just rote words that we rush through, but we absorb them. We mull them over in our minds. So in the little bit of time that we have left in this message, what I'd like to do is walk with you through each phrase in the Lord's Prayer. You heard them prayed. You heard them prayed beautifully in a, a small sampling of the myriad of languages that are represented in our gathering at MCBC. But we're going to walk through those again And then this week, as you pray it day by day, we're going to invite each other to add those little thoughts, those little reflections, those words that we pray to God after we've offered up each of these phrases. We start here, our Father in heaven. And at the very beginning, what we're doing is reminding ourselves that that prayer isn't the same thing as worrying out loud. It's not just listing all of our concerns about the world spiraling out of control. Prayer is thoughtful, reflective conversation with God, and that begins by addressing the person that we're talking to. It means I have to address God. Anytime I talk to somebody, anytime I email somebody, I address them. I don't just say, hey, you. In fact, in an intimate relationship, we have all kinds of these private names, these terms of endearment. Couples in love have lots of these. Sugar pie, honey bunch. The French have the beautiful ones. Mon cœur, my heart. Mon amour, my love. Uh, Mon couche. Mon chou is is my cabbage. And I don't even know how they get that, but, but it is a term of endearment. What's the way to refer to God? Jesus invites us boldly and beautifully to address the creator and judge of all things by saying, our Father. In fact, do you realize that the whole gospel is wrapped up in that first word, our? That God is not just the father of the historical Jesus, that whoever your earthly father was, whatever your earthly dad was like, that you have a heavenly father who made you and loves you and watches over you. So when I pray our father, I remember that God never says, now what is it now? What is it you want? Why are you always bothering me? When I pray our father, I remember that I am special, that I'm his. I also remember that I'm not any more special than anyone else that every single human being I see is held and valued and prized in the Father heart of God. So we start by saying, Our Father. Then we say, Our Father in heaven. When you think about heaven, which is it that you feel is closer? Is it heaven or is it Brampton? I mean, literally, Jesus says here, Our Father in the heavens, and it's plural for a reason, and it's a reason that that we probably don't understand, and that's why it's translated in the singular, but here's why it's plural. In the ancient world, when they talked about the heavens, they thought about these different levels of the heavens. There was the atmosphere way up there where the stars are. 
And then there was the sky immediately above our heads, but there was also the air right here around me. We might pray, our Father, who is as high as the heavens, but as close as the air that I breathe. When you pray, our Father in the heavens, don't just think of somebody far, far away. Think of someone who is also as close as the air that's going into your lungs. That's where God is, right here, our Father in the heavens. And we move to the next phrase. Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name. That's our way of saying, God, may your reputation here on earth be greatly increased. May people come to realize just how wonderful, how majestic you are. May you be adored and worshipped and praised. And I'll say just a little bit about this part of the prayer. Sometimes it's a stumbling block to people because they think about God and they say, why, why is it that God wants us to praise him all the time? Is he, is he some kind of cosmic narcissist? He just needs people to prop up his ego constantly. Here's a very important thing to understand. Worship is not something we do to boost God's self-esteem. C.S. Lewis wrote extensively about this. He noted that when we see something that we love, we just naturally desire to praise it. In fact, the act of praising doesn't just express our joy, it becomes part of our joy. Imagine this. It's going to take a bold leap of imagination. But imagine your frustration if you saw the Toronto Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup, but you weren't allowed to cheer and you couldn't share the news with anyone. See, the point is when we see something worthy of praise, part of our joy is to be able to praise. Lewis goes on, he says, imagine you're a single guy. You meet a beautiful single woman, her character, her spirit, her face. Uh, to her, you'd want to express your praise. It wouldn't go any other direction. It wouldn't go to someone else. It would go to her. All of our enjoyment, spontaneously, it overflows in praise. So you have a lover praising his beloved. We have fans praising their team. We praise the beautiful weather on a day like today. We praise fine food or gorgeous flowers or memorable books or spectacular sunsets. Praise is the inner health of the soul made audible. And so it was G.K. Chesterton who said, I maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought, that gratitude is like happiness doubled by wonder. And he goes on to say, the worst moment, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. God is worthy of praise. And when God is fully cherished, when the heart is fully healthy and the soul is fully home, that's when it all comes together. We were made to praise. And that's why we say, hallowed be your name. Let's move onward in the prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me ask you a question at this point. Again, how many of you, when you pray, have ever at least one time had your mind wander? I don't know about you, but 
But for me, this is why prayer can sometimes be so hard. My mind can be so random. It's pathetic. I can see a pop-up ad on my computer while I'm looking at my prayer journal with my notes in front of me. And there's the pop-up. Find out what this childhood star from the 90s looks like today. And I think, I got to know. I barely remember who they are, but I got to know what they look like today. You see, I can't trust my thoughts always to dwell on the things that matter most. And too often my mind drifts away on autopilot. And when it's on autopilot, where does your mind go? Doesn't it often go to worry? You start praying and the next thing you know, you find yourself worrying. There I am. I'm worrying about the church. I'm worrying about one of my kids. I'm, I'm worrying about my problems. So for me, this little part of the Lord's Prayer is like, it's like reorienting myself. It's a little like being there in a shopping mall and standing in front of one of those directories with a little star that says, you are here. Your kingdom come. It means I'm not located mainly in the middle of my problems. I'm not located there mired in my own sin and guilt. I am located in the kingdom of God. I am alive because it's God's will that I be alive. And I want to be part of this greatest of all possible missions of God's will being done on earth, in our city, on the internet, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, my workplace, of what's up there coming down here. And when you pray that kind of a prayer, I think it always leads to surrender. God, your will be done in me, in my body, and with my time, and with my resources, and my energy, and my words, and my relationships. God, your will be done throughout this day. We move to the next section of the prayer. Give us today our daily bread. I love this part. And for this part of the prayer, often what I'll do is open up my calendar on my computer and I'll start to glance through the meetings and the tasks of the day. And I'll pray simply, God, would you help me with this? Lord, give me today what I need for today. Folks, this is so important. Manna, daily bread, provision for life, however you phrase that, answers and strength, these things come one day at a time. So Jesus isn't leading us to pray, Lord, give me today what I'll need for the rest of my life. No, it's give us this day the manna, the sustenance, the bread of the day. Imagine for a second, you've got a group of little children. You're serving them breakfast. They come to the table and you pour out their bowls of Fruit Loops. But then you watch as they take and they, they pour half of their Fruit Loops into a little bag and seal it shut. And you ask them why and they tell you, well, honestly, dad, uh, uh, we weren't sure that you'd feed us breakfast tomorrow. I mean, wouldn't you want to tell that child, hey, you know what? Tomorrow is not your job. Tomorrow is my job. Your job is today. Just receive what it is and enjoy what I give you today. You know, when I worry, I'm always worrying about the future. It's always about tomorrow. But thus far in life, I think one of the things I've found is that, that I can face almost anything. 
if I have God there with me one day at a time, and as faith deepens, the little word almost gets removed. I can face anything. As I pray, God, give us today our daily bread. It's what I need for today. Wisdom comes for today. Strength for today. Love for today. Answers for today. Joy for today. Tomorrow will come tomorrow. God, give me what I need today. Let's continue praying. And forgive us our debts. A great Christian thinker, a man named Neo, <clears throat> Neo Plantiga, wrote that recalling and confessing our sins is kind of like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. And so people will ask, how many times do I need to confess my sin? Well, it depends. How often do you sin? Picture, if you will, a three-year-old playing with a hose in the backyard. That little girl soon discovers, as all little kids do, that hose plus dirt makes mud. And it doesn't take long before she is just head to toe covered in it. She is a complete mess. Her nana had been watching her, was a little bit consumed, looking in the other direction, but she turns around and she sees her granddaughter covered in mud, mud everywhere. And she carefully cleans up the mess. She changes her clothes. They go back into the yard together. But she tells her granddaughter not to make any more mud. And this time she turns her chair so she's looking right at her granddaughter while she prays, while she plays. Now, that little girl, she still wants to play in the mud. But this time she turns and she says very sweetly to her grandmother, don't look at me, Nana, okay? Don't, don't look at me. For whatever reason, her, her Nana agrees. Nana maybe is a little bit codependent. Every few minutes, that three-year-old, as she wallows around in the forbidden mud, repeats with a charming voice, don't look at me, Nana, don't look. The tender soul of a little child, it reminds us just how necessary it is to feel like nobody is watching us when we're in the wrong. You see, this is the real sinner's prayer. Don't look at me, God. Don't look. I want to indulge my temper. I want to ignore the poor. I want to indulge in this or that appetite. I want to deceive that person. I want to sabotage this relationship. Don't look at me, God. Doing wrong requires that we put God out of our mind. And sometimes we do that so often we don't even notice. And then we wonder why it is that God seems so far away. So every day we pray, forgive us our debts. And I ask God to show me where it is I was playing in the mud. And I say, God, give me mercy. Forgive us our debts. And then the prayer goes on as we also have forgiven our debtors. So I'll also ask God, God, is there something that I need to go back to, to clean up? Where is it in the course of my day that I was unkind to somebody? Where was I selfish, dishonest? Where do I need to ask for forgiveness? Where do I need to make amends? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And we're going to look at this a little bit more next week. In fact, next week, the whole message really revolves around this one phrase. And I, I hope you'll join us. I don't think you'll want to miss that. But for today, let me just say it is psychologically impossible for us to have a tender heart towards God and a hard heart towards others. In fact, I'll tell you a prayer that I bet you've never prayed. God, help me to hold this grudge against my coworker with bitterness and superiority. You see, anytime I'm holding a grudge, indulging bitterness, whatever it is, I have to say, don't look at me, God, don't look. Because I can't embrace God's forgiveness of me and then unforgiveness toward another person and hold those things together at the same time. Receiving forgiveness and offering it are inextricably linked together. It's not just that they should be, they are. The prayer moves into its closing phrase. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now what I'm really asking is for God to guide me. God, keep me from falling into my own worst self. God, give me the strength not to fall into the destructive habits and patterns that I know I will fall into on my own. God, don't let the great adversary in the world have his way with my life. I saw another prayer not too long ago that that I thought was kind of useful because it expresses the kind of help that most of us need when it comes to temptation. Prayer goes something like this. It says, Dear God, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy or grumpy or nasty or selfish or overindulgent. I'm glad about all that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to be getting out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. So thank you. Amen. Somebody is going to leave me. That's just true about life. Somebody is going to lead me, and if it isn't God, who is? How often in the moments of my day do I, do I not pray, God, deliver me from this temptation to not trust you? How often do I not pray, God, deliver me from this anger? God, deliver me from this fear? God, deliver me from this folly? How often do I not pray, God, guide me and show me where I need to go? Lead me. God, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Now, if you look at your Bible, Matthew chapter 6, where we've been working this morning, verse 13, in this passage, you'll notice that the Lord's Prayer actually ends with those words, deliver me from evil. But you know some other words, don't you? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Let me say a word or two about what's going on here. There is this strong tendency with Jesus. He often ends his messages on a hard note, on a jarring note. We'll see this when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The final line is how this wicked storm comes and takes the house of the foolish man and obliterates it. Jesus says, and great was its fall, boom, the end. Or he tells the story of the prodigal son who comes back home, and there's a big party, but that's not where the story ends. 
the older brother goes outside. He's resentful and is grudging. He's grudging. And his father goes out and pleads with the elder brother, come back inside. Boom. The end. See, here's the idea. Jesus doesn't often pretty stuff up. And I think he knows that an unresolved ending sticks in our minds. And sometimes the prayer, this grand prayer, feels like it has an unresolved ending. Very early on, very, very early on, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the followers of Jesus added these words, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Maybe they remember Jesus saying them at another time, but they're part of the prayer now. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. God, you are, you are large and you are in charge. And then comes the final word, the word, amen. And I'll say something about that little word too. I might be the only one, but I've noticed that sometimes I go to pray by myself. My mind wanders. Before I know it, I'm not praying anymore. And, and I just quit and I go off and I start the rest of my day. Now, we would never do that in a conversation with another person. Imagine that. I'm involved in a conversation, then my words just trail off, and, and I just wander away. So just as it's good to begin a prayer conversation with God by addressing him, it's great to close it on a note of triumph and prayer and praise, and that little word, amen, is how we do it. It's not just a way of saying the end. Uh, it's actually, it's... It's like a ringing affirmation of the Spirit. Yes, Lord, so be it. This is the way we want it all to be. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. That's reality. In fact, one writer used to say that you might occasionally, if you can stand it, try saying, whoopee. Imagine, I imagine anyway, God himself wouldn't mind for yours, the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Whoopee. Amen. So here's the takeaway. Pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Do it at least one day or once each day throughout the week. Don't rush it. Maybe fill each phrase with your own thoughts, your own desires, the honest rumblings of your own spirit. Make this week an adventure in prayer. When we say this prayer together, we humbly and grandly join this great chain of prayer that hasn't stopped from the very first day Jesus uttered it right until right in this moment. In fact, in this moment, let's pray that prayer together. You join me as we pray. Our Father, in the heavens, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we also have forgiven those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, 
the power, and the glory forever. God's people together said, Amen.